Welcome to the Waste Not What Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet the way nature intended by revitalizing our natural resources, minimizing waste and maximizing human potential. I trust you discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philipparos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello, Wastebusters. Welcome to episode 39. Today's episode comes to you on the day when the world received the sad news that Queen Elizabeth II left the physical world at the tender age of 96. Elizabeth wholeheartedly embraced an unforeseen role to serve her country, which she selfishly did for 70 years. A mother of four, grandmother to eight and great-grandmother to 12 children. There is a plethora of tributes whirling around the world The most touching and poignant in my eyes is how much the enchanting Platinum Party at the Palace comedy sketch between Paddington Bear and Her Majesty captured the hearts of people worldwide. An association that's being used visually to honour the relationship between these two noble characters, with Paddington taking the Queen's hand to now take her home. The sketch serves as a beautiful metaphor to highlight how the simple pleasures in life can be found through humour, conversation and a connection to the treasures that bring out the best in us. Treasures that shine through the soul when we turn up to a tea party as our authentic self. It is my privilege and honour to present this week's guest, wildlife conservationist Leif Cox. A serendipitous conversation that honours the characteristics of nobility. Leif has devoted close to 30 years of his life to protecting orangutan, people of the forest, who have in turn provided him with a deep, meaningful connection to himself and an understanding of the interconnectivity and value of all parts that make up our entire ecosystem. Sit back and embrace the infinite wisdom of a gentleman who believes we can collectively create a thriving future. Welcome to the show, Leif. It's really fantastic to have you with me. And the serendipity of it all falling into places. I've been wanting to do one of your adventure tours in Borneo for like 10 years. Haven't quite got round to it yet. And then I discover you're doing an event here in Auckland, which brings me one step further. And I thought, well, why not contact him and see if he'll do an interview? And here you are. And in Conservation Week as well. I love the title of your event, which is A Future We Can Believe In, because with all the doom and gloom that's going on at the moment, it's so refreshing to hear of somebody who sparks some hope. Why did you choose that title and what hope do you have? One of the reasons I chose the title, because we often get hold of these false paradigms. It's wildlife versus people or the environment versus the economy or a future where we're not destroying the planet is one of poverty and deprivation, and it's far from the truth. The future that we can create that's in harmony with nature and conserves our planet for future generations is one of prosperity and well-being. And so I just wanted to, through the talk, impart my vision for the future and how we're working to achieve that by developing sustainable rainforests 
sustainable ecosystems with yep. sustainable economies underneath the rainforest canopy with the indigenous communities. So it's the interconnection of it all, which is so important. And with the podcast as well, it's all about building our relationship to the planet, which is to ourselves and our community. It's an all-inclusive thing. And I think we're so used to looking at things in pockets without seeing the connection between it. And conservation itself is, while we might be conserving a particular area or species or something, you have to look at the big picture, which is what you're doing, isn't it? Yes, uh, no, that's extremely important. The, the other aspect is, I believe we can't leave anyone behind, if that makes sense. Is you can't talk about conservation unless you're talking about animal rights. You're talking about Indigenous rights. You're talking about female empowerment. All these things you know, need to go together. They're all part of the same jigsaw puzzle. Mm. And all the good things that we can think of need to be combined together. So we just can't go, oh, look, I'm only interested in saving this species and not consider that that species, like all of us, are all interconnected you know, and related on this planet. So if we're going to survive at this stage, we're going to have to, in a sense, um, develop a system that's a win-win situation for all living beings on the planet. And if we leave one of the jigsaw puzzle pieces out, Yep. then we're liable for the whole thing to collapse. And so what's your vision for this then? Mm-hmm. How can we integrate it? Well, at the moment, we basically have exploitative economies. And so big businesses make obscene profits. Mm-hmm. Right? And the reason why they can make obscene profits, they pass the true cost of production onto the powerless. Animals, future generations, indigenous communities, developing nations, as some examples. And, of course, these feedback loops are destroying the whole planet and eventually even the economic ecosystem which those businesses are sitting upon to make those obscene profits. But we can move to a place where, well, businesses can still make profits. You know, they can still, in a sense, people can still own very good livings and everybody become prosperous within a sustainable ecosystem, but it won't be exploitative anymore. The future is everyone can be happy, wealthy, content and safe. This is what we can provide everybody, not an impoverished future. But it means that when people are undertaking businesses, they can make money, but they can't pass the true cost of production on the powerless. What you probably won't get is in a sustainable ecosystem is billionaires and trillionaires, which, which can only be done by exploitation of others. What you could get is lots of rich people and affluent people and happy people. And that's the future I think we can believe in. Because what, what we also know is billionaires can't actually spend the money. There's just not enough time and effort to spend it. So it's just kind of wasted in, in purely monetary sense. But also we know after a certain level of income, there's no net gaining happiness from additional income. So it's just more, in a sense gold on the mule's back it's really in a sense a psychology of a cancer cell (laughs) you know just growing for growing sake and killing the host and not really thinking about it even its own benefit and so the future we can believe in is not about saying oh we we don't want rich people we want everybody they want everybody to live a prosperous life maximum that and that just takes a little bit of reasonable understanding of the environment sustainable economies are based on a functioning, stable environment. It's the motivation, enthusiasm that everybody is included and a valuable part of it. I think 
you were talking about the psychology of stuff and that is my background and to me the way the world is going it's everything's so divisive and you have to prove x y and z and the material gain seems to be a label that you have succeeded in some way but actually it can be very barren around people's lives. And so the richness really comes in the serving and the exponential effect that what you do is creating richness for other people and the environment and all living beings, basically. Yeah. I mean, we've been sold this lie that money equals happiness. Yeah. yeah. And of course, we can see all over the world and with wealthy and happy and well, unhappy and you know, um, famous people. It's not true. We don't want poverty. Poverty sucks. You know, we need yeah. to get people into, you know, a place where they're, they're affluent and safe and secure and they don't have to worry and get all those cool things that, and all that great technology and, and things which are coming along, which is just going to make life so much better, you know, for, yeah. for everybody. But the idea is money doesn't equal happiness. In fact, it's probably the opposite. You know, very wealthy people tend to be often the most miserable. So we just got to understand is what we really want and what everyone really wants, even if they don't cognize it, is they want to be happy. And getting people out of poverty is part of that. We really want to concentrate on real well-being of people. And that's necessarily connected with the well-being of all living beings on this planet and, of course, the planet that supports us. You are involved with the Orangutan Project and you've been aptly named the Orangutan Whisperer and you have a project with the elephants and tigers as well. And I've heard you say that they are the most humble of sentient beings. And I'd love to dive into the lessons that you have learned from the orangutans and how that has brought you to where you are today. Well, I term orangutans as, as a more noble form of humanity. The person is just as we are. Yeah. Um, self-aware beings, which you know, have projected themselves in the past and the future, have anxieties and, and worries and all the things that persons and they're the most intelligent being on the planet that, that shares the planet with human beings. But also what I mean by a more noble form of humanity, although we're capable of so much love and empathy and connection, we're also capable of so much horror, so much destruction yep. of um, other living beings and also humans themselves. Orangutans don't seem to have that ability. Um, and the example I give is we've killed over a million of them. And since I started the orangutan project, over 100,000 orangutans have been murdered as the forest has been cleared for unsustainable monocultures such as palm oil. Now, even though they're four times stronger than a human being and the males have canines like tigers, there's not one case of the orangutan in a zoo, sanctuary, or in a wild ever killing a human being. They don't seem to have that dark side that um, the human race seems to have. And so in many ways, they're, they're a more noble form. And that's got a lot to do with a loving upbringing and how the mothers are extremely loving and caring. They suckle the babies to eight years old and provide them a secure environment. And what happens is you get these very self-secure individuals because, you know, from that beautiful, loving start that they have in life. And so... My blessing is that I've got to, you know, spend my life with a lot of these orangutans going from birth to them having birth and then orangutans going from captivity to the wild. And so that's been the greatest privilege of my life. Wow. Well, yeah, I believe it was the late 90s that you were introduced the first captive orangutan back into the wild from a zoo. I'm really bad with time, but yes, but certainly <laughs> I think 
I started the orangutan project, I believe, in 1998. And then a while after that, starting the project and get, um, supporting orangutan reintroduction rehabilitation is then um, having the infrastructure to start taking um, orangutans from zoos from back into the wild so they can be free. And because they're persons and persons don't do well in captivity, that's our nature. Yep. It's kind of irrelevant how loving and caring the pe- people are, in a sense, in the ultimate outcome. Of course, that has an effect. And the example I give is refugee camps, where you know people working refugee camps are good people. <laughs> they're there to help and they're there to look after people and solve the problem. But what we know, people that are in turn refugee camps for a long period of time have psychological problems because they're persons. They need to control their future and environment, who and how often they want to. And so, no matter how well we look after them. We do have to provide them freedom and ability to to live their lives in their own cultures. And orangutans are no different to that. So ultimately, you know, no orangutan should be in captivity. And so our ultimate vision is not only that we're going to save the species, that one day all orangutans will live in a wild and viable habitat in their own cultures and societies. Wow. What a privilege. And to have that understanding, you say... It's the rehabilitation. You can't take somebody from one environment and just plonk them in another. You have to have an understanding of their needs. And as you say, the youngsters are with the mothers for eight years or something. And so if the mother's not around, there's a lot of integrating of learning. And I I believe you go to jungle school to learn basics, really. And it's so important to have that broad understanding and not just throw them back into the world and say, get on with it. It's a support, isn't it? Well, yeah, because, you know, the sophisticated animals predominantly adapt to the environment through natural selection, having lots of offspring slightly different and nature selects which one is most adapted to the ever-changing environment. Intelligent animals have go down a different route. They have very few babies with vacant brains, with very little instinct, and they use culture to adapt to the environment. So the mother orangutan, in this case, programs a little baby's brain over 12 years or so for the females on how to survive in the wild what to eat what not to eat what are the dangers how to raise a baby and that sort of stuff and so for example if you want to let's say uh, introduce cats into an environment you don't have to have a big cat introduction program they're pretty much born with 90 percent of what they need to know instinct right because they don't adapt to an environment like we in orangutan predominantly through culture and so with an orangutan if it's taken if mother is killed and eaten and it's psychologically traumatized it needs to go through a whole process the first one of course is to repair their little minds because um, mental health is got to be the basis of social health and then of and forest skills. Without that basis being taken care of, it's a house of cards which will collapse. Yeah. So they need a loving, caring, and safe environment to start to repair their minds. And then they need that culture programmed into them by other orangutans and their technicians and carers. And then that's why it takes so long and takes so much more effort to get an orangutan from captivity to the wild. Of course, the most efficient and best thing is to stop orphans from coming in the first place. So number one is always going to be is a protect habitat, protect wild populations. Unfortunately, over the last 20 years, we've been losing the battle. Orangutan's rights to live and not to be murdered is just not recognised. Mm-hmm. as well as Indigenous rights not recognised. 
Yeah, and, and well, the rights of future generations, because this is all, all this rainforest is, is contributing to climate change and is replaced by unsustainable agricultural systems that will collapse in 50, 60 years and leave the economic wasteland. All these rights of future generations, Indigenous communities and other non-human persons, orangutans, not recognised. Uh, and therefore, we, we do have and continue to have a lot of orphans that need this care and loving journey back to the wild. And of course, being a critically endangered species, every individual now is an important genetic part of their survival. Yeah. When numbers are so low, every individual not only matters because of the value of them as a person, but also their ability to contribute to future generations of their species. Well, you say like 80% in the last 20 years. That's just um, mind-blowing, actually. And it breaks my heart to think that we're treating the planet and other living um, beings like this. You say we've only got a limited amount of time. You didn't mention it here, but it's on your website with the event. The next 10 years are crucial. What can we do within the next 10 years that's really going to make a difference? So just get to clarify what I mean by we've got the next 10 years. It doesn't mean there's not going to be any rainforest in 10 years. Right. But you need a certain size, type and shape of the size of rainforest for rainforest to be self-sustaining because rainforest creates rain, reduces temperature, increases humidity, you know, and you need a certain size and complexity for that to be stable. Otherwise, the ecosystem collapses. Right. It doesn't mean there's not going to be orangutans in 10 years. But you need about 2,000 orangutans in the population. Otherwise, it will inbreed and, and start to genetically collapse. Yeah, yeah. And so it means that we may have orangutans and we have rainforest, but the thing is collapsing. But in addition, unfortunately, we have these feedback loops. This traction of the rainforest is, is in contributing and driving climate change. But then climate change is feedbacking around, causing droughts fires, raising a temperature, which is again degrading the forest. And this is why climate scientists are talking about this is the most important decade in human history. And why this is the most important decade to save orangutans, which is going to determine whether their populations will survive, whether their rainforest will continue to survive, is now. So we have this huge obligation in this generation now to make the meaningful change before it's too late. And of course, there's all these forces who uh, corrupted our governments to continue the exploitation so they can continue making money while driving the planet and species to extinction. Unfortunately, we, we're up against huge forces, but we have to do this. Otherwise, you can't pass it on to future generations because the feedback loops will have runaway problems. And so what we can do, well, for me, we have to collectivize. The only way we can ever achieve anything is to collectivise together. And one of the ways we offer collectivisation is to save the orangutans, rainforest and habitat for the Indigenous communities, elephants, tigers and orangutans. And that's one of the most cost-effective ways we can start mitigating climate change and provide the genetic and biodiversity resources to start rewilding the planet, which is going to be needed to stabilise the planet in future decades. When you say rewilding, what do you mean by rewilding, for those that don't know? What it means is we've gone past the point where if you stop destroying the planet now, yep. it's going to be fine. No, <laughs> if we stop destroying it now, it's still going to collapse. We not only have to stop the destruction, we have to revegetate, re-establish functioning ecosystems, re-establish the world as a functioning place. So what I mean rewilding is we have to start bringing back nature and we have to, in a sense, increase forest cover, as an example, by 30% on the planet. 
in order for it to least to get to stabilization. Wow. And so it's not just about stopping destruction, but allowing it to expand. But we need to provide the genetic, the island, the arcs of surviving rainforest in order for future generations to be able to use that genetic resource ability to start rewilding the planet. And of course, the more biodiverse a ecosystem is, more carbon holds. So very bland systems, all monocultures are unsustainable by their very nature. They destroy the environment from which they operate from. So even for agricultural systems to be sustainable, you need to have polyculture, a diversity of plants and animals in order for that agricultural ecosystem to survive. But even beyond that, we still need wilderness, which mm -hmm. is highly biodiverse, to provide the genetic resources for future generations and the high-value carbon stores, which can support the other agricultural systems. So it's all interconnected in, in that way. It's amazing. Probably about 10 episodes ago, I was talking to an organisation, Island Birdsong, and was a, a group of islands here in New Zealand. And one of the things he was talking is about bringing back the native birds, but also about, as you say, regenerating, rewilding it. But there's a fine line between human intervention and us thinking we know what is needed and allowing nature to take its course and to replant what's necessary. So, you know, with your 30 plus years experience, you have that knowledge and the indigenous people who live around who really understand the ecosystem. And that is crucial, I imagine. No, it's a very good point because replanting afterwards is a very poor substitute. And, you know, what we're finding with test plots is if you've got rainforest nearby, it actually grows back faster and better if you don't do anything. Right. Nature knows what to do. Yep. Then you try to replant it yourself. But in some situations, the rainforest is too far away and some reforestation is necessary. But what we're learning is we, what we don't know and how useless we are, you know, <laughs> um, and, what we, and that's why we, it's rewilding the planet because yep. we think we can, in a sense, understand enough yep. to have a sustainable ecosystem and all connected by a man-made design. Yes. I, I think we're fooling ourselves. Yeah. What we want to do is to rewild nature knows what to do it's, yeah. it's, it's evolved from this planet for millions of years and it will provide the most stable outcome and most productive outcome for human beings and the other beings sharing our planet absolutely and as you say i think for too long we think that we can control and rape and pillage and exploit the environment and have one over um my lineage is connected to antarctica and i had the privilege of going there six years ago and it is an incredibly humbling environment because you are so vulnerable there and it just brings it home to you. And it was so tranquil. So when I came back to so-called civilization, the noise and the intrusion was just mind-blowing. It really took me nearly two months to recalibrate to how much we're bombarded with in everyday life, which is so confusing. One of the interesting things, because I take people on echo tours back into the jungle and see orangutans as, as part of my role. And what I think is happening, and because people often enjoy and have life-changing experiences, and obviously orangutans are a big part of that, but we as a species haven't had time to adapt, even to the agricultural revolution, which is 2,000 years ago, neither alone the industrial revolution 200 years ago. And so we only really, in a sense, connect and feel at home and feel good when we're with nature. 
mm. you know, because that is coming back home, if that makes sense. And yeah. um, and, and and there's a connection, and then there's a peace, uh, and there's a beauty in that. And we so remove from we don't recognize it anymore. And then you know, and then when I take people naked to is that they in a sense we come home as a species, and that's in in a sense. One of the most wonderful things is rewilding a planet and us living in with nature and in nature is actually a huge psychological benefit for us. Mm. You know? And there's all sorts of studies now where people, in a sense, uh, connecting to nature gives all fantastic health outcomes for people. Yeah. And in a global sense and an economic sense, and also in a personal sense, there's ultimately no well-being. Does that make sense? An ultimate peace and, and prosperity without understanding our intrinsic connection with nature and this planet. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. So, how did you first start your interest with the orangutans? What sparked it for you? What were you like as a, as a young boy? Did you have any hopes and aspirations in this um, field? I always loved animals and nature. So, although I, I was brought up in one of the biggest metropolises in the world, Hong Kong that's where I come from I had a virtual menagerie of terrapins and fishes and budgery guards and cats in my room so as much as you, you could in a metropolis I, I surrounded <laughs> my, uh, myself by nature my family is very artistic and it was thought that you know I you know as a talented artist in that as a child I would become an artist but by, I went in a different direction I, I went on a science direction you know, and we, you know, we, and, and obviously that led me into studying and working with animals. And of course, I had a wonderful opportunity to work with 15 orangutans and discovered that the self-aware persons, and as I mentioned before, it's more noble form of humanity. And, and, and since then, I've been on a journey to help save orangutans as individuals and as a species. But also, as I say, orangutans may be the centre of my love, but not the boundary of. But through that process, it's helped all the other living beings, not only in their ecosystem, including humans, but that's through the interconnectedness and the value of rainforest to the entire planet, help everyone on the planet today. Wow. It's fascinating because my two animal loves are, or three actually, is horses, because my name means lover of horses and I've had a lot to do with them, but it's the Sumatran tiger and the orangutans because they're so mischievous, aren't they? And the tigers are so regal. As you say, they're kind of an umbrella for what you do. You obviously love them and have a great relationship with them, but it helps bring the outer world to a realisation of, of what is needed, which is the work that you're actually doing. Yeah, it's all interconnected and it's all an intelligent expression of love. And as I mentioned before, we can't leave any being behind yep. because that's the missing jigsaw piece that will collapse is what you're trying to create. And that's often why I also talk about we have to reform ourselves in order to reform the world because we have to also develop the inner landscape of love and connectiveness in order for that to be expressed properly into the world. And if we don't do that, we will pollute and destroy the work that we're trying to achieve to save the orangutans or the rainforest or the environment. And so how have the orangutans helped you to come to love yourself and have build the relationship with yourself? 
I, I guess orangutans, and uh, as I mentioned, this, this more noble form of humanity. And a lot of people, when they go to see an orangutan and they look into the eyes, they obviously see a person looking back at them. Mm-hmm. But maybe for the first time, they experience a more connectedness than they've experienced before. You know, us, like our close cousin chimpanzees, are very social and very dynamic. And so often our relationships are based on contract or need. Yes. Someone wants you, needs you, or connects with you, and it's not purely altruistic. They want something from you. Right. Or they say, I love you, but some fine print with condition, with conditions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those conditions don't a whole, I don't love you anymore. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's in a sense what we experience as human beings, often not ever having the experience of love without condition. Before you move on, are chimpanzees like us in that way? Is that what differentiates the species? Oh, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, ch- chimps are very much like us. They're our closest relative, capable of warfare, empathy, hate, and, and in fact, actually far more socially intelligent than we are. And they're all about politics. <laughs> and orangutans, which are uh, the semi-solitary species, and are brought up with extremely self-sufficient and extremely high level of mental health, when you have become a friend with an orangutan, it wants nothing from you. It needs nothing from you. Right. you know? And so it, it's more in sense of pure connection when you can have uh, a relationship with a being in a sense that wants nothing from you because they're content and strong within themselves. And, and therefore, you can have a much more pure and direct contact with um, such being. Of course, humans are we're capable within ourselves is evolving as, as persons to be like that, but it seems to be intrinsically more common in orangutans to have that self-awareness and connection, you know, that allows for a more pure connection of two living beings. And so you felt the resonance with them and it created the space for you to come to know yourself. I, th- I think it's, in some ways, a two-way street. I mean, my um, predominant idea is you have to reform yourself yeah and that's an expression does that make sense so your work is you've got to find that love and connectedness within yourself and express it that's got to be a predominant flow of activity but there's feedback loops yes you know just as if you're stressed you can slowly breathe slowly mm-hmm. and that then feeds back and selfless work working selflessly for others and caring about others that feeds back into, in a sense, happiness and connectedness in you. I believe it predominantly has to be reform yourself and then your expression will naturally be pure. But there is this wonderful feedback loop once you start on the journey that will make life and yourself happier, more content. And I've got a strong feeling. It just came to me then that actually humans are in their own jungle school at the moment, reintegrating the learning and getting back to understanding themselves because there's nothing out there that actually teaches us to be ourselves in our formative years apart from the environment of the family and the community around us and they've taken on the social conditions and things which is all very much survival based as opposed to getting to know and expanding and allowing space to grow into who you are it's a huge great big jigsaw puzzle and I have great hope like you my actually my family motto is hope lightens difficulty so I love anybody who sparks hope and basically broadens the picture for everything and gives everybody an opportunity 
So is there any book or person that you have come across that has really influenced your life? Oh, look, many, many books and wonderful people that I've had the opportunity to share my life with. If I have to have a, a, a book, just as an example, uh, my favourite novel is The Razor's Edge by Somerset Mong, uh, which has been made into a movie a couple of times in the 1950s with um, Tyrone Power and then um, Bill Murray did a remake a while back. So what did you get from that? Well, the protagonist is Larry, who gets disillusioned with the world and and, and then goes on a journey of discovery. It's, it's in, in many ways, in a sense, it's a nice metaphor, I guess, for our journeys with self-discovery and, and ultimately in happiness and, and realisation of a oneness with all humanity. Fantastic. So do you have um, a quote or something that inspires you to keep you going or have you created one for yourself? I have many little maxims, I guess, which, you know, I sometimes let go of. But the, the one that I, I'll talk about now is our first duty in life is to be cheerful. And, oh. and people think, oh, well, more than that, that's selfish, or you worry about yourself. But my, my whole point with the future we can believe in, this is not about you becoming miserable and self-sacrificing. This is about <laughs> you becoming happy and prosperous and helping the world. Yeah. And with a miserable and hollow inside, we create misery outside. And That's even if we want to go on a journey to save the planet. loop, isn't it? Mm. it? Exactly. But if we find the happiness and joy within ourselves, then that will naturally express out. And all we have to do then is to understand how to express that love and connection in an intelligent way. So the first duty in life is to be cheerful. Don't spread misery. Become happy and help and spread that love and connectedness. And so with all these things, it's talking about win-win solutions. And we and we have to start with performing ourselves. So I guess with all your work, there will be a number of times, I'm sure, that you have felt quite frustrated, despondent or down and out. What do you do to enliven, enrich your life, to make yourself feel cheerful? Well, my message is it has to come from within yourself. Yeah. Looking for external things to hold your happiness on. It will collapse. No matter what you hold it on to, I'm going to be happy if this happens or this happens or this stays. It will collapse. Yep. Happiness and, and contentment and strength come from within. And then you express that out. Then you have the energy and the ability to overcome obstacles because you're coming from that strength and happiness within. Otherwise, you're on a roller coaster. You know, if I get that grant or I save those trees or I do that and then that doesn't happen, then you're down and then you have to pull yourself up again. And that's a roller coaster you don't want to get on. So your cheerfulness is your tank that you fill yourself up and that gives you the resilience to carry on. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say fill you up. Your essential nature is happiness and joy and love. That's who you are. You just haven't recognised it yet. So it's not about, in a sense taking up anything or filling something up it's about realizing that actually is your essential nature and therefore you don't have to do anything (laughs) and it's not reliant on any external thing and that way you have the energy and the ability to keep going through the ups and downs of life and careers into things like saving orangutans fantastic so my last question is if i was your fairy godmother and could grant you one wish in the world what would it be and why my answer to that is I wouldn't wish anything because I really don't have the wisdom <laughs> to wish one thing because it, the, everything is interconnected. You know, if I wish one thing, 
I probably don't have the wisdom of nature in order to understand that effect. I could say the welfare of all living beings. That'll be the only wish because it's only with that universal concern and wish that I think there's efficacy achieving a, a better world. Brilliant. So to round it off, what can people do within the confines of their own home and local communities? Because it sometimes seems like a really going back to the beginning of the conversation where you're talking about hope and the future we can believe in. How can we contribute as individuals to create the momentum for the collective to make a difference for the work that you're doing and for the environment, you know, everything? Essentially, my message is we have to collectivise. Yeah. I, I believe as individuals, we have to live a noble life. And I would then suggest the first most effective thing you could do is become a vegetarian if not a vegan. And that most immediate best thing we can do as individuals. And of course, you know, living a life which is carbon neutral and all that sort of stuff is all good stuff. But we're not going to save the world by us individuals doing that. Right. The only way we're going to save it is by collectivizing. And we can do that in two ways, depending on, you know, um, we can collectivize our capital. So give to an organization that's making a meaningful change in a world. Or we can collectivize our labor, volunteer for an organization that's making a meaningful change. Right. And all of us has one of those things. We either have time for labor or we have some surplus income for capital. So all of us, no matter what our situation is, and a wonderful thing, of course, is discriminate charity that makes meaningful change and us collectivizing making meaningful change enriches our lives too. I, again, I keep emphasizing this, this is always win-win solutions for us mm. um, on this journey to save the orangutan and also to save the planet. It's fascinating because I finished off them last week's podcast with the fact that you can contribute either with your time, either physically or with money it's amazing how everything leads into everything else we're on the same planet and everybody this is the emphasis I'm trying to put to everybody is that you can make a difference and it does have a ripple effect and join up with local groups and things I mean here in New Zealand we've got the likes of transition towns and things but as you say I think the important thing is something that is meaningful and addressing the big picture because it's a massive big picture and it can be quite overwhelming. But I think with the stance of that loop that comes back to us, if we can know that what we're contributing helps others, it comes back to us and it expands. Fantastic. Any final words you'd like to leave us with? Just that obviously I've been in Auckland the 14th of September and Wellington 17th of September doing the talk, a future we can um, believe in. And if you go onto the orangutan .org.nz website, the Ranking Project website, and go to How to Help, you can book a ticket to the event. Anybody, your listeners, I'd love to see you at one of the events and continue the conversation. Fantastic. Well, I didn't realise that you were in Wellington as well, which is fantastic. But I'll be there on the 14th, and I'm really looking forward to one, even one step further to actually meeting you in person on the night. Bless you. Thank oh, you so much wonderful. for your time. You're welcome. And then we'll, I'll see you soon. Yeah, see you on the 14th. Take care. Okay, Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Since recording my interview with Leif, I've been asked to be a guest panellist at the Auckland event this coming Wednesday. What an honour. You'll find links to both the Auckland and Wellington events in the show notes, along with all other links to Leif's work. 
On researching Paddington Bear, I discovered the author Michael Bond was inspired to write the story after finding a lone bear on a shelf in a London store on Christmas Eve in 1956 near Paddington Station. It was a time he saw so many Jewish refugees wearing labels of where they came from and carrying their only possessions in a suitcase. He bought that bear for his wife. You see, we just never know what difference we can make in the world and it's my encouragement to you to use your gifts to make a difference. Here's a few lines from a song written by Gwen Stefanio and Farrell Williams entitled Shine that was written in 2015 to accompany a film about Paddington. The words honour our noble queen and the power of our connection to ourselves to use those treasures of the soul to serve the world. One thing about me, I'll be there for the team. I'll do anything to protect my people's dreams. And if the earth just finds me wandering around, you know my soul will rise up and keep on shining. When you are trying to get home, shine. When you don't want to be alone, look at yourself in the mirror. That's your way home. Next week, I'll be talking to Greg Hart about regenerative farming, a heart-centred man whose own life has been rejuvenated from connecting to nature and seeing things from a different perspective. Make sure you follow or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out. All feedback and reviews are much appreciated, as are your suggestions for subjects or guests you'd like me to consider. Just email me on info at Finally, remember your contribution is invaluable to all life. So until next week, dig deep, open your mind to a world of possibilities, live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste and maximise your own potential. 